following is a transcript of a paper I delivered at a night of philosophy, a free event that hosted 62 international philosophers and 12 artists on April 24th, 2015 from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. simultaneously at the French Embassy and the Ukrainian Institute in New York City's Upper East Side. I was invited as an artist and I chose the subject of the shape-shifting character Lashonki of Ukrainian, Russian, and Slavic folklore to adapt to the site of the Ukrainian Institute. The logical shape to shift into was that of a philosopher. I delivered my lecture at 3.50 a.m. to a full concert hall with people standing around the perimeter. Included are my costume notes and the visual and audio interruptions. There is no video documentation of this event, so this is a reenactment. I was walking down the high street when I heard footsteps behind me. I entered the room wearing a big bad wolf costume, carrying the head under my arm. When I approached the stage, I bolted and it made a thud. Sorry about this, but I just came back from this other gig. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce my topic and then I'm going to show some images while I change out of this outfit. And then I'll begin my lecture. Leshy appears in Russian, Ukrainian, and Slavic folklore as a woodland shapeshifter. The adult male is Leshy, the adult female is Leshovka, and the child is Leshonki. They live in forests but have been seen in taverns, villages, cities, and other countries. As shapeshifters, it's impossible to know which appearance is natural, but there are consistencies. Many claim they have pale, white, bark-like skin protruding eyes, hair and beards made of vines and leaves, sometimes a tail and horns. They're half human, half goat. They cast no shadows and leave no footprints. They can grow to the size of a tree or a bell tower and shrink to that of a blade of grass or appear as a wolf. They also appear as a familiar person to impose a false sense of security. When they appear as a peasant, their kaftan is buttoned incorrectly. They don't wear belts, they wear clothing backwards and shoes on the opposite feet. They trick woodcutters, huntsmen, and cowherds by hiding axes, moving signage, obscuring paths and leading them into animal dens, quicksand, or choke creepers. They prefer hit and run over direct confrontation and weaken their victims with separation and exhaustion. But their preferred act of torture is to tickle them to death. They also target neglected babies, children walking alone, young women, women whose husbands are away. You, you kind of see where this is going? Exhausted and drunk peasants returning late and foreign travelers. Basically, if you need a magic excuse, Leshy answers the call. Finally, to protect yourself, you need first to listen. The sound of laughter, hand clapping, and whistling indicates a Leshy's presence. A peasant entering the wood could reverse his clothing, remove a belt, button his shirt the wrong way, and put his shoes on the opposite feet. Coachmen would reverse their horse's collar and harness, everything short of putting the cart before the horse. One could also make a leshy laugh with jokes and backwards behavior and sayings like, 
Come yesterday. As leshies fear fire, another option is to start a forest fire. Just hope they don't catch you because it'll get you a lethal tickling. They're sensitive and weep at the drop of a tree. If you suspect one is near, bend over forwards and look between your legs. If you succeed in making it laugh, Aleshi will cast a spell of protection on you, which only your curiosity can break. And if you're having a lucky streak, the moment you approach Aleshi, Lashovka, or Lashonki to give thanks and ask how it was done, your fortune will abruptly stop. So now I've collected some images of a Lashonki. The young are spotted more easily as they're still learning their trade. So while I show you these, I'm going to change out of this outfit and then begin my lecture. If any of you feel the need, now would be the time to take off your clothes and reverse them and swap your shoes. <laughs> At this point, I changed out of the Big Bad Wolf costume and put on a brown tweed suit. Uh, reversing my shoes and my jacket. <laughs> and as he walked, beneath his feet were chillblains. Aristotle used this joke from an unknown drama as the earliest example of the incongruency theory of the philosophy of the comic. Does anyone get this joke? Does anyone know what a chillblain is? Like laughter in a foreign language, we often miss the joke. With Aristotle's, we don't know the context. Chillblains, we learn, are sores resulting from frostbite. But why is this man's pain funny? In order for humor to succeed, it must surprise us. Immanuel Kant said, laughter is the result of an expectation that ends in nothing. Now, I would disagree that chillblains are nothing, and to the walker they are something, but their appearance would have surprised his audience. So, working backwards, we can translate the joke. The walker is likely a king, prophet, or the brightest philosopher himself, or someone from whom below his feet the earth might tremble. Instead, he has blisters, the plight of any peasant. It's actually a Bergsonian joke. Any incident is comic that calls our attention to the physical in a person when it is the moral that is concerned. Now, having understood the context, we can laugh properly. So, here it is again. And as he walked, beneath his feet were chillblains. E.B. White said humor can be dissected like a frog can, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. <laughs> Explaining humor, like chillblains, is painful to humans too, and by now, White's joke opens most discussions of the philosophy of the comic, so it's exhausted by repetition. In sketch comedy, the magic number is three, three escalating beats. Two is not enough, and four is too many. If I add a fifth, well, that's when you throw vegetables. Yet there are pure scientific minds among us, philosophers especially, who can't help poking at frogs. 
So we proceed by reminding ourselves that even gynecologists fall in love. <laughs> After laughing, some of us want to know why something was funny. Umberto Eco said the problem of the comic had the advantage of always having caused embarrassment to those philosophers who tried to define it. He meant that every philosopher who has tried failed to get it completely, starting from Plato and Aristotle, through Freud and Bergson, up to John Muriel and Simon Critchley. We have three primary theories, superiority, incongruency, and relief, but no grand unified theory. And this is cause for embarrassment. Philosophers, like scientists and mathematicians, like to seek the one, Neo, or God, that will solve everything. Part of the problem is that the comic is divided into too many family resemblances, as Ludwig Wittgenstein might call them. One theory can't apply to humor, laughter, jokes, puns, derision, satire, irony, parody, wit, physical comedy, and tickling. So each philosopher tackles one at a time, and the comic, at the top of the taxonomy, has trouble holding all the banana peels. <laughs> Aristotle gave us a starting point, but he also gave us false leads. He and Plato gave Thomas Hobbes a pad from which to launch a superiority theory, a sort of stepping on the neck of the person we're laughing at. He also gave us chillblains, which Kant, Schopenhauer, and Kierkegaard developed into an incongruency theory. And he told us that after exactly 40 days, a baby could laugh. But babies have since proved him wrong. <laughs> and this suggests that literacy plays a role. With chillblains, we are illiterate of the context, so we miss the point. And the rule of the comic differs from the rule of the tragic. And again, I'm invoking Umberto Eco. With tragedy, he explains, the laws are constantly reinforced. At every step, the audience is reminded of the rules. So when they are broken, we witness the character flaws and see the suffering we are prepared for. This builds literacy. With comedy, by contrast, the rules are presupposed because we know them well. The rule of the comic is to never announce the rules, so that when a break occurs, it is incongruous to our expectation. For the comic to work, one must follow a recommendation by Wittgenstein. He must throw away the ladder after he has climbed up it. <laughs> Aristotle also suggested that man, alone among the beasts, has the capacity to laugh. And this, too, has been called into question. But more on that later. Now, Echo gave Aristotle a way out of embarrassment. He said, as a thinker, Aristotle was lucid enough to lose a text in which he had not succeeded in being as lucid as he usually was. <laughs> Philosophical lore has it that Aristotle was working on a Poetics of the Comic, but that book is now lost. Many philosophers continue to search because, in Western cultures, without Aristotle, we lack confidence. If Aristotle were smart enough to lose a book he couldn't wrangle, then who are we to try? In fact, Echo included Aristotle's lost book as a character in The Name of the Rose. And there's a good essay by David Colosi, entitled The Comic in Echo, where he analyzes this character. And I'll only mention it here. Connecting a chain of Echo's thoughts, Colosi points to a third remark in which Echo says, 
not one of those who have written on the philosophy of the comic could be called a comic writer. He argues that Echo, as a semiotician and literary theorist, who also writes novels, has come closest to fixing this. Though he doesn't directly call Echo a comic writer, he's not David Sedaris, Tina Fey, or Chris Rock, Colosi points out the greater chance of success if the writer is more than an explainer. But what kind of success are we after? James Feebleman, in his praise of comedy, anticipates Echo's remark. He says, Comedy belongs to the realm of intrinsic value, but the examination of comedy is part of logic. So the analysis of comedy can be no more funny than the analysis of water can be wet. Is the physicalness of the physical object destroyed by the measurement of its weight, mass, density, and dimensions? Certainly, the analysis of water cannot be wet, except metaphorically, and a box is no less a box once we measure it. But just as Kant and Hegel wrote reasonably within reason, Heidegger was as he wrote about being, and Sartre existed while writing about existentialism, so can a written work about the philosophy of the comic be funny. Now, when I was in high school, I got shingles, and my doctor told me a joke. He said, when the shingles jump your spinal cord, you're going to die. I didn't get it. So he explained that since shingles run along nerves, they can never jump to another nerve. So I had nothing to worry about. My response, being illiterate of this medical fact, was, fuck you. Philosophical analysis and comic writing both operate through language games, so no spinal cord separates them. They share a nerve. Tickling, you might argue, is an exception that doesn't involve language. A philosophy of tickling can't be ticklish. This I'll grant you, but it is possible for both to elicit laughter. And laughter inspired by tickling is a result of literacy. A baby, after however many days, must understand that mother means no harm with her fingers. Peter McGraw, an empirical humor researcher, has named his grand unified theory the benign violation theory. For the mother's tickling to be a benign violation, the baby, in its defenselessness, must know tickling to be harmless. That's Wittgenstein's ladder again. In the final analysis, nothing requires philosophical writing to be non-humorous. So, in challenge to White's quip that analysis of humor kills it, can we, rather than dissect the frog, try to tickle it instead? And here I will break with the rule and forecast my goal. Wittgenstein is attributed to saying a serious and good philosophical work could be written which consisted entirely of jokes. I'm a fan of mathematical statements, and those that Kurt Gerdell could appreciate interest me even more. And I call this margin note by Wittgenstein the Fermat's last theorem for mathematicians of the philosophy of the comic. Andrew Wiles solved his problem, so there's hope for ours. By announcing my goal, you could say I'm executing my joke, and that's a bit of gallows humor for you. We know that explanation can be painful, and if you've read Rebecca Solnit's essay, Men Explain Things to Me, you know what I mean. Mansplaining is no laughing matter, even though we gave it a funny name. But there is something funny about explanation. After hearing her pompous host explain to her about another book on Edward Moybridge that he read about in the New York Times, 
ignoring the interruptions of Solnit's friend, who repeatedly corrects him in that he is, in fact, describing Solnit's book, she leaves this uncomfortable situation in this way. Being women, we were politely out of earshot before we started laughing, and we've never really stopped. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a link between explanation and laughter, and now it's just a matter of harnessing it in our attempts to explain why we laugh. Alexander Herzen wrote, It would be extremely interesting to write a history of laughter. And Mikhail Bakhtin wrote a history of Rabelaisian laughter, which is extremely interesting, but it is also very unfunny. He discusses bodily humor in the time of Rabelais with terms like scatological discharge and the lower bodily stratum. Compare this to Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, where we see and smell shipped sputum, sperm, amniotic fluids spilling out of the sack, and kidney stones, milk the baby throws up when it burps, and sunbeams in the anus of Judge Schraber. Their work, like that of Rabelais, breathes, heats, eats, shits, and fucks. So surely philosophy can be funny. Just don't call me Shirley. But I, but I... Also, taking up Herzen's challenge, Barry Sanders wrote Sudden Glory, Laughter as a Subversive History. It is extremely interesting and funny at times. But again, Bakhtin, Sanders, and Deleuze and Guattari are not comic writers. So why, recalling Feebleman's objection, would we expect their books to be funny too? Possibly the problem is in Echo's idea of a comic writer. Who does he expect to write this book? Jerry Seinfeld? (laughs) Comedians know how and why comedy works, and like Aristotle, they are lucid enough to lose the explanation. So if the philosopher is too outside the joke, and the comic too inside it, who then can solve this proof? My answer agrees with Colossi's in his essay on Echo. Possibly the artist and novelist can meet the challenge by remaining inside the joke and outside the joke simultaneously through a manipulation of characters. But to understand why requires more explanation. I feel a case of the chillblains coming on. As I've said, philosophy likes grand unified theories, and its preferred path to oneness is dualisms. Several are pertinent. The first is the laugh versus the smile. When we hear something funny, we involuntarily laugh. But when we understand something that's funny, we knowingly smile. The second, related to the first, is the naive versus the critical. The first time we hear something funny, we are willfully naive. We walk into a result we didn't expect. If we take a second critical look, we can achieve the smile. This, again, comes from Echo. He discusses it in terms of naive and critical readers, or first and second level readers. The first level reader of a novel finds out what happens. She doesn't ask questions, but waits to see how it ends. The second level reader reads again, wanting to know how she was led to that end. These readers are White's pure scientific minds. The creative versus the scientific and the aesthetic versus the serious are rather arbitrary dualisms. Michelle Welbeck has written serious scientific novels and Dazane is pretty creative. Derrida, too, is a great poet. And Echo's work conflates these dualisms, writing novels on the one hand and theories of semiotics on the other, 
while uniting theory with practice in the same nerve. Entertainment versus art also follows this pattern. And now this is the third time that I'll mention David Colosi, who in his book Towards a Three-Dimensional Literature Part 1 tests the theory that the role of entertainment is to give us what we know and want, and the role of art is to give us what we don't know and don't want. Similarly, Edward Said said, Least of all should an intellectual be there to make his or her audiences feel good. The whole point is to be embarrassing, contrary, and even unpleasant. The role of the artist is the same, according to Colosi, in that she gives people what they don't know and don't want, and once they start knowing it and wanting it, it loses its status as art and becomes entertainment. And this is why Ad Reinhardt called a museum a tomb, because art goes there to die. I can only introduce Colosi's theory here, but it leads me to the last dualisms I'll draw your attention to, and that is the amateur versus the expert, which concerns the credibility the speaker has to discuss his topic. The tension increases when someone, say, chooses to discuss freedom of speech, but her record shows that she is not an expert on the practice. Irony withstanding, we would rather hear the amateur speak because we can learn more from contradiction than perfection. And wasn't it Kierkegaard who told us, wherein there is contradiction, the comical is present? And in this way, along with Rebecca Solnit, we can laugh at the pompousness of others and never stop, in the hopes of appreciating the social value of exposing our own flaws. The expert, like a work of art that we know and want, like the deteriorating Last Supper that no longer looks like what it stands for, resides in a tomb. The amateur can deliver the surprise and contradiction that makes us laugh. And finally, I step on the ground where the artist meets the philosopher. It is on this stage that you can hang me from the gallows. Most artists, faced with an audience of the world's leading philosophers, would approach the podium saying, I'm not getting on that thing. It looks dangerous. But here, maybe you've begun to ask yourself, is Professor Lashonki, who has been clowning wisely, a comic writer? In closing, I want to return to Aristotle's idea that laughter separates us from the other beasts. We continue to believe this idea and attribute it to him. But as Barry Sanders points out, Aristotle said this as a margin note, and others after him preserved it as a barrier we're too proud to poke. In fact, when Aristotle introduces this idea, it is buried in a statement on tickling. The philosopher said that man alone is affected by tickling is due firstly to the delicacy of the skin, and secondly to his being the only animal that laughs. For to be tickled is to be set in laughter, the laughter being produced by such emotion as mentioned of the region of the armpits. I get the chillblains reading that. Recently, science amateurs Jad Abenrod and Robert Krolwich did a Radio Lab episode on laughter. They challenged this notion of man's exclusive ability to laugh when they interviewed neuroscientist Yak Pengsip. Now, as you might have guessed, I have another gig to go to after this, so I'd like to play you an excerpt of their show while I change. Yak Pengsip is a neuroscientist at Washington State University. And for the last 30 years, he has studied animal emotion particularly happiness and play in rats, for example. So one day, Yak and a grad student are standing in front of a rat cage watching two rats wrestle silently, and 
The grad student turns to Yach and says, is it really possible they're not making any noises? I mean, look at them. Maybe they're making sounds, but we just can't hear them. So he suggested to Yach, why don't we order one of these little black boxes? They call them bat detectors. That nature people use to listen to bats. What if we put one on the rat cage? Maybe it will take whatever sounds might or might not be there, lower them down to a range that humans can hear. And the equipment arrived, and the first day... We had a couple animals playing, and we tuned it, and lo and behold, it's like a playground at 50 kilohertz. (laughs) One morning I came in, and I said, let's go tickle some rats. He and his grad student quickly walk over to the rat cage. We pick up a rat, we carry it to a box, and I begin to tickle it. And by tickle, it's just like you, you would tickle a baby. You're moving your fingers rapidly all over the animal's body. There's a male rat. He demonstrated. And for the first time, it occurred to Yak. My God, what if that's laughter? We were thinking, this a fluke. It's a fluke. This a fluke. You see, you didn't trust what you were hearing. Uh, well, we trust what we're hearing, but I said, let me get another animal. Whoa. Bingo. Exactly the same. same. Exactly. I still kind of said, come on, this is too good to be true. Let me get another animal. Okay, here's Tickle. Exactly the same. Jackpot. Let me ask you this, though. In terms of calling the squeaking a squeak or a chirp mm-hmm. or, a, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. that would be one thing. But to call it laughter is saying something very specific. Yeah, a lot of people don't like that word, huh? Even my friends have advised me to drop that word. Because they don't think that a rat can feel joy? Or is, that, is, that, is that why? Yeah. Giving human qualities to animals has been a no-no since we are closer to the angels than the other creatures of the world. He was kidding, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, so, oh I kind of believed him. I thought he meant the laughter in the subtle way that he imagined. No, he... no, no, no. He thinks human laughter is not special. He thinks Aristotle's wrong, basically. Check it out, Aristotle. Do an experiment. At this part, I changed into a green and black Riddler costume, the character from Batman. Just before I go, I have two riddles. Here's the first one. Is it possible to tickle frogs in a way that won't kill them? And the second... What happens when a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it? Aleshi weeps, and young Lashonki, unable to control himself, might as well be laughing.